Hello and welcome to the Back Page, a video games podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, how's your week going? It's very good. I just watched Unforgiven, the Western classic starring Clint Eastwood. How did that make you feel? Do you feel like you're um, a kind of like a veteran content man, sort of like coming out of retirement to do like one last job whenever you're drawn into like a freelance review assignment? I mean, if that film has told you anything, it's that old men shouldn't hold on to their kind of glory days. It doesn't end well for many people who do. So, you know, maybe it's time to move on and just become a pig farmer and accept my lot. (laughs) Isn't Clint Eastwood basically making that film again this year as well? Like, uh... He's got some film with like maybe baby or crying in the title, something like that. And Ooh. I think it. I, I think he is That's a, a great, great film. Unforgiven, really yeah. good. I think he just thought, well, I'm still alive. I'm still old, so I'll just make another old cowboy film. So I think that's what he's doing. Yeah, but, um, yeah. it's funny because back when they did Unforgiven, everyone was like, "Wow, he's old," but he was only like late fifties, and now he's like, you know, literally like a walking skeleton. He is so old. That yeah. unforgiven, he looks quite young. You're like, eh, yeah, it's, it, it doesn't, it doesn't hold up as much. Yeah, my partner was constantly pointing out how handsome he looked for an older man, and I was like, yeah, all right, I get it, you know. Um, but yeah, yeah, good stuff. So, Matthew, before we get into this week's episode, then, which is we're doing another mailbag this week. It's partially brought on by the fact that we had a delay in getting like audio for our the our planned episode, so we've pushed that back a week. Our E3 memories episode, but. We thought we'd do another mailbag episode because we, we had a few questions built up. We put out a call for more questions. And inexplicably, our last mailbag episode is one of our most downloaded to date. It's um, a very popular episode. People really liked asking us a bunch of questions and um, having loads of answers in quick succession. I guess because you can cover loads of topics at once. But hmm. we're doing that again this week, Matthew. How are you feeling about it? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think we've got a, a nice range of questions quite broad uh, there seems to be a theme to some of them there seemed to be a lot of interest in us dishing dirt on <laughs> games <laughs> reviews I, I remember that from last time as well yeah. lots of people interested in the reviewing process and the weird baggage that comes with it yeah there was one question that i didn't put in here which was which did literally ask about ethics and games journalism and i was like nah i just i'm not litigating that on the podcast can't be bothered um <laughs> so i left that out uh, <laughs> Um, basically someone asking do you know any instances of like um, people being like recorded under desk without their consent and stuff and I was like no it's like no definitely not this isn't like all the president's men it's yeah anyway it's not um, the wire which I've also been watching yeah how is that treating you now you're on season five very evocative for you as you recall your days uh, a man in the print mines yeah back when I tried to also convince everyone there was a serial killer in Bath um, <laughs> to try and spice things up well, in Endgamer somehow. That doesn't work anyway. Well, Let's there, move on. There was that guy who, um, well, I don't know if it was a guy, actually, I don't know why I said that. There were those missing feet that turned up all around the place. Remember those? Yeah, I guess that is the Bath Chronicle had its The Wire season five moment with the missing feet. Everyone was so excited for the missing feet. and Didn't it turn out to be a load of medical students chucking feet over a hedge or something i don't i think you might have balled down some of the details there uh, but <laughs> i think it was something it was expected to be like medical waste or something like that so um right yeah i'm not okay. sure i'm not sure it will you know make... you can't just 
they were basically vox popping people who were walking near where the foot was found <laughs> and going, do you think this is like a mad murderer? And you just had people going, yeah, I guess it could be. <laughs> you know, this is not super valuable news coverage. But that's what basically counts as news in Bath, isn't it? It's like, um, you know, lorries are loud on this street on like Thursday mornings. That's like a headline. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, if a feet, if like some rogue feet come along, you just take what you can get, you know, and you you run. Oh yeah, I mean, man, you must be like, this is my ticket out of here. This is the <laughs> ticket to the big leagues. If you hit the foot story. <laughs> yep, there you go. We've uh, the fine work of the people at the Bath Chronicle. There, we've boiled down um, very nicely. So, one other thing, Matthew, before we get straight into the questions, we're going to do what we did last time. Fire through. I think we've got twenty-one or twenty-two questions here. We'll just go through them in quick succession. Um, the results of the draft, Matthew, last week's episode, the um, Games Acquisition Madness episode. So yeah. the the poll has not closed yet, but it is looking like it's going to end in my favour. Um, yes. <laughs> and by the time this episode is out, people will know the results. I feel like reasonably confident I've got this now, unless you get your entire family to vote for your picks in the next 24 hours. No, I, I, I wouldn't do that. Like I, I thought we should play it nice and honest. The weird thing was... In the episode, I said, please don't use my terrible E3 um, to kind of like, you know, don't judge me based on that. Mm. And yet the people who have come out in favour of me have done it purely because of the E3. Like they don't care for the game studios I picked at all, but they're just like, I just want to see that mad conference. When I actually think my studio selection isn't that bad. I think that's pretty strong. Yeah, I think that you're, I actually think apart from Sing, which I thought was, um, a slightly worse choice than mine. I thought your choices were on a par. I think it's because maybe when you pick something like Playground Games, which is obviously an amazing studio, they're a bit like maybe less in the vein of the types of games we've talked about on this podcast. Whereas, yeah, that's yeah, that's fair. I'd say on on the weird like Venn diagram of stuff I'm interested in and stuff I talk about a lot on the podcast, um, Playground Games aren't aren't really in the crossover period, uh, section at all. So, mm. well, the good news is neither of these companies are real. So, Matthew Castle Productions, um, Big Sammy Holdings Limited, they're um, <laughs> you know it's not like they're going to be like hitting the stock market anytime soon. So, um, yeah, we'll um, we'll put that to bed. But um, thank you so much for voting on that at home because um, we've had over two hundred votes for it, which is like way more than I was expecting for such a daft premise. So people definitely got engaged with it gave us a feedback it's uh, greatly appreciated yeah so, yeah so matthew let's get into the questions then should we do what we did last time and alternate in asking maybe you start and then i'll do the next one so we're going to start off uh, from this is from anders bad uh, via twitter there's an accent on the a so i might be pronouncing the bad wrong what are your thoughts on having to complete a game before reviewing it is it a must or a case-by-case scenario shall i go first matthew yeah go for it so this is this comes up quite a lot there's a lot of like you know questions about whether you should be doing this for a game and then it's one of these things that people argue about on twitter and then but no one would ever talk about it in real life that's what i think of this kind of discussion but i honestly think it depends on the game so mm. obviously like there are some games like fifa where you can't actually complete it so you know what are you basing it on it's a whole bunch of stuff i imagine maybe you play a whole season of games or you test out all the different modes or whatever but i was actually thinking about ghost of tsushima which i played earlier this year if I'd have like reviewed it after playing, let's say, 30 hours, rather than like the 60 hours that I um, eventually put into it, might have been longer than that, actually, I think I would have given it the same score and pointed out the same things, because that game doesn't largely change from beginning to end, minus a few upgrades and stuff. So that is a game where I would feel comfortable in doing that. 
Yeah, I would say that that's kind of like my stance on it. It depends on the game. Obviously, if it's like a, like kind of a narrative indie game, you ideally want to see the back of it. If it's a really kind of like obtuse game that could take hundreds of hours to master, I don't know. At some point, it's. I think it's. Per- I personally think it's okay to say, I have played this enough to know whether you should play it or not, and therefore I can make mm. it all based on this. And I think that's what it comes down to more than ticking a box of have you completed it or not. What do you think, Matthew? Yeah, I, I feel. I feel. Uh, uh, roughly the same like when you're playing something you get a read you get a feel for how consistent it is in what you've already played i mean i do try and finish stuff there's some things you just can't like i guess it's kind of a case of sort of setting myself a sort of certain amount of time that's feasible or possible sometimes it's set for you by review events you're like well i can only play what i can play here and sometimes it's based on like well i've got other stuff to do or i know what else is going on I'd say most games I review I do finish, but then I don't play, you know, I try to avoid, like, massive JRPGs. They're the main candidate for games that don't get finished, I think. You know, it's just because they're hundreds of hours, and it, that is just, just not possible. Service games, obviously, very, very hard to review in that sense. I always live in fear, though, of something, like, massively shitting the bed at the end. Mm. And it, that that is in my mind. Like, sometimes I, f- I feel weirdly, like, on RPS, they're they're often quite honest about how much they of it they've played. Like if they haven't finished it, the the reviewers aren't embarrassed to say like after twenty hours, kind of here's where I stand on this, and 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 that's kind of given it a bit of flexibility. I, generally, though, it's a it's a case to case basis. I do try. I mean, the stuff I tend to review and the stuff I like is quite short, cinematic, single player games. So that's not always a problem. Yep, I think that covers it then, Matthew. So question two. You have to put together a dream squad of companions for the Mass Effect 2 finale, the suicide mission. But they can be from any video games ever. That's from Mike on Twitter. Um, I've made notes for this, Matthew. Why don't you give me your answer first? I just I made a general observation that it's a very combat-heavy mission. So you need people who are like fundamentally good fighters, which kind of limits you to not an amazingly exciting selection of people. You know, like you, you know, it'd be a laugh to say, "Oh, I'll bring along Phoenix Wright," but. I think he'd be murdered quite quickly. Uh, like, he's just got no... He's, there is no role for him on, on that mission. I think you also need people who've got, like, a, you know, the, the suicide mission angle of it. You need people with, like, an amazing will to live. So they're either, like, got big, like, motivation, like they're, a, they're like, a mercenary or a bounty hunter, like, financial motivation. So I was thinking, like, Samus from Metroid would mm. probably be quite good good value for money plus you know spaceships or just someone who'd been through so many harrowing adventures that they weren't just going to give up now at the last hurdle so like i was thinking of that the the poor bloke from like the metro games <laughs> oh, <is laughs> artium. Artium? artium yeah <laughs> just because he's had such a rough life you know he's like i've made it through these horrible things i've now been taken to this suicide mission on the space station i think he's he's not just gonna like give up the ghost i think he'd fight so yeah I guess my party at the moment is just Samus and Artyom, which is pretty weird. Yeah, um, I've actually like assigned someone people to different roles. Is that okay? Oh um, wow, okay, you went much more hardcore than me. Well, I had to like re- re- you know kind of like um, sort of give my memory a jog of what the different roles are in this um, suicide mission. So um, I actually decided to keep um, a couple of the Mass Effect characters for the different fire squads. There are two different fire squads. Um, I've kept Garrus because Garrus rules, obviously. He's a fire team leader. Um, my intergalactic waifu Miranda also remains, um, so <laughs> she can be the distraction fire team leader. 
I've also decided that I'm going to send Mario into the vents, which is obviously right. what he meant to do with Legion, because vents are basically pipes, and I think he'd know what he's doing there. However, okay. I think your Samus answer is better, because obviously she can just morph ball and go straight through it. Oh, um, yeah. So that I think Samus is a really good call, very versatile. So yeah. uh, I'm bringing along Yuna from Final Fantasy X um, to do the kind of like protecting everyone with the biotics oh, yeah. role. She's like uh, sort of defense, but also can do like offense if needed so she can call in like a summon if things get a bit dicey and finally i'd bring several of the cheeky engineers from um, red alert command and conquer to take over the human reaper at the end so they would basically all like jog into him try not to get killed and then like take over him so he'd be like on my side at the end and um, then i'd get him to blow himself up and that's how we'd finish the mission oh wow that's such a better answer than samus because it's a bounty hunter in space and a rather frail, fragile Russian guy who kind of got lucky. Yeah, well, um, I'll give you like a little um, a sort of glimpse of my process, Matthew. I took 40 minutes last night to basically make notes for every single one of these answers to um, give a, a full-bodied <laughs> response um, to each one. Um, so, you know, I um, who knows? I mean, if you've done the similar level of prep, you'll be, you'll be fine. If not, then... Um, I mean, I, the pressing thing is, this is with prep. <laughs> <laughs> with with prep i brought a man who would actually probably just have a heart attack from being on a spaceship <laughs> like this is a man who's lived in a tunnel his whole life and all of a sudden he's having to deal with space i don't know well oh, i mean god i don't know like i mean i don't know if you writing writing off phoenix right a bit prematurely is unfair this is the man who fought galactus and put him on the stand you know in a, in a court of law oh yeah you, you are know. right yeah he's I forgot fought- about i forgot about that part of his his personality. I mean, he'd definitely be there to kind of help litigate, like, if we were accused of any war crimes or anything. He'd probably help us out. <laughs> I, f- I feel like... Not that um, I intend to do that, but... I feel like the word litigate has slipped into our vocabulary as a result of listening to too many of the same podcasts. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I used it in a review the other day and I thought, that isn't one of my words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. I can go on the bingo card now. Um, Liam Richardson's bingo card. So I'm trying to avoid saying saying the V word. So and I'm I'm going to lean right into it. You know, this podcast is going to have big Samuel Roberts energy. Um, people are going to love it. <laughs> um, so it, next one is you to read out, right, Matthew? Yes. Uh, how demanding are publishers slash editors on journalists to beat a game before reviewing it? <laughs> um, quite similar to the first question. Yeah. A slightly different tweak from Robert Augusta Mayer on Twitter. Yeah, so I, um, in my experience, like uh, editors trust you to make the right calls on, um, you know, how, when you decide to assign a score to a review. That's always been my experience. Is that as a professional, I've been trusted to do it. To do it. I don't think anyone's ever. Actually, I think a few editors have asked, "Oh, did you finish this? How far did you get?" or whatever. But um, yeah, I think generally speaking, that's a pretty, uh, pretty, you know, sort of professional relationship. Um, how about you, Matthew? Yeah, with editors, I've always been trusted, and I've always trusted. And you hear a few horror stories occasionally of not not editors, but you know, when a review is out there, you sometimes get developers saying, eh, "I don't really think this is you've played as much of this," but you know, whatever. I, I kind of I trust my peers, and I trust the people I work with. On the publisher front, I would say that there's there's no like demand with review code, like actual conditions on what you can cover and what you should cover never really extend to like ideally you should finish this i don't know if it's just because it's like an unwritten thing of like ideally you would finish this something you do sometimes get with review code is not pointers but like you should maybe check this stuff out or we're proud of this stuff or we like this stuff 
which I think I see a bit more of in the last couple of years, where you get, like, especially with open-world games, it's like, if you haven't got time to finish this, why not see X, Y, and Z? Because we think that's the game at its best, which I sometimes think is odd, because, you know, if you've got content that should be seen and you're particularly proud of, you should maybe surface it in a better way than having to give someone a document to, them to find it, or go here to see the good bit of the game. Like, ideally, it should all be amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think that... Um... Uh, review guides are fairly common for sort of some big games. I can't say I recall any by memory. Usually the tone's very mm. friendly. It's like, hey, you know, this is these is, these are the basics of the game. This is like the world and stuff like that. This is uh, stuff you can see in the game. Sometimes uh, you're, it's pointed out, don't spoil this particular part of a game, which I'm completely fine with. Sympathize with like not spoiling bits of the story or key moments from the game necessarily. You can review a game without talking about those, I think. And um, yeah, I think uh, it's not... But no one, I guess, like just to answer Robert's question, no one's like saying you need to do this, this and this before you review it. Um, no. That doesn't exist. I'm always keen to be very like uh, frank about that side of things because that, when you see people staring on Reddit about games journalists, it's like it's the same old bullshit that comes up, you know? Yeah, I don't mean to suggest that is the case. I mean, the, the closest thing you get is, hey, check this out. Like, or we recommend this in the review guide, but it's, again, nothing compulsory. Yeah. All right, cool. <laughs> Let's move on to another question there, Matthew. So this is from um, Oodle Sodim on Twitter. hope I pronounced that right. Tell me that one single-player game that you just can't stop coming back to. What's this for you, Matthew? This is quite tricky, because as I've said on this podcast several times, I tend to move on. You know, mm. the nature of the job, I, I'm always playing something new, there's, there's very few things I just keep coming back to. I, in recent years, if there's anything, it's probably Breath of the Wild, which is a game which, I, you know, I definitely haven't, like, 100%ed it. I haven't done all the... I don't think I've done all the shrines. No, I haven't done all the shrines. But it's a world I'll just keep coming back to and, and dipping into. And it's a game I really like starting from the beginning again and, and just sort of working my way through that little kind of plateau and then break into the main thing obviously that's probably it for me like probably my most replayed single player thing yeah i think that in recent years i've actually been trying to replay stuff less because i think 2016 or something like that i had a period where i just i replayed a bunch of like really long games and then felt slightly behind suddenly and so since then obviously game releases never stop now and games are like longer than ever or more demanding time wise so the time to replay stuff is more limited i would say that I actually just the other day I picked up um I mentioned this game earlier but Final Fantasy 10 I have on the Nintendo Switch. I own basically every Final Fantasy game they released on Switch that I already own in other formats I bought on Switch right. as well because you know I don't, I've got problems I guess I'm not sure. But um 10 is one that I can just always pick up because it's a game that I know inside and out I finished it at least 5 times. I just <laughs> I'm just a huge fan of that world and like I was about 4 hours into the story and I just picked it up and oh yeah I'm on Besaid Island and I know you know, after this, you get on the boat, you go to Killaker, and I know all the different beats of that game, and I find it a very comfortable world to step into. So, that's a single player game I come back to again and again. Over the years, I've replayed all of the Uncharted's, I think like three or four times the PS3 ones, and then um, twice the uh, Uncharted 4 and Lost Legacy. Played all those with my partner a few years ago. I find those very enjoyable to replay. I'm, I'm not mm. saying that they're like the um, you know the best games ever, but they're very significant games in sort of like my lifetime of playing games so um and i find them again extremely comfortable to come back to and um mm. yeah they're just nice to pick up and they're you know obviously they're nice characters to spend time with there aren't that many games where characters you know give you that feeling so um that's uh an underrated part of why uncharted is so good so 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That answers the question, I think. Cool. Uh, so uh, it's one of your questions, right? Yeah, next up we've got, uh, are there any demos slash games played at press events uh, that were wildly different to their finished product? Uh, that's from Supreme Sonic at Twitter. Uh, on Twitter. <laughs> at Twitter. <laughs> um, I, I actually found this what difficult. I, I struggled to think of anything which had changed substantially, like beyond maybe a power-up placement here and there, like when we did those deep dives on Mario Galaxy that I've talked about. You know, in the final game, there were some, like, coins in different places that we only noticed because we literally drew the levels from the E3 demos out as maps. So, yeah, I don't know. Have you ever seen this? I can think of a few examples that I I I haven't played necessarily, but I have got one that I have played, actually, that is, like, not out yet, even though I played it years ago. So, interestingly, um, Biomutant was just released. That was a game that we had playable at the PC Gaming uh, PC Gamer Weekender in like I think early 2018, and then the game came out like this year. So that's like a massive yeah. time jump there. So I'm not sure what happened to that game in that period. But anyway, um, a more interesting example is I played um, Ubisoft Skull and Bones, the um, multiplayer. Uh, really? Yeah, the Assassin's Creed boat um, combat game. I played this at E3. I want to say E3 2017. Because I wasn't at 2018, so it must have been 2017. I played this. Yeah. I had like a hands-on demo. I played it with um, uh, Sam White, actually, who listens to this podcast. Like um, he was stood next to me, I think. So unless my, I've kind of like manufactured that memory from a year of like pandemic madness, which is possible, um, <laughs> that's a game that's like not out, but I've played it. I mean, you know, if you want to know anything about it, just let me know. But it is basically like a multiplayer version of those um, those fun boat combat encounters in um, uh, Assassin's Creed Four. So yeah. Um, that's like a, an interesting one. I've got another one though, Matthew, which is um, Dead Island 2. I saw a demo of that that I don't believe was shown publicly before it was like canned and then given to a different developer. I believe it's Free Radical huh. making it these days or whatever they're called, the um, the old Free Radical. So Bambuster. That's right, yeah. So I think they're making it now for um, Koch Media. So yeah, I saw this. It was a demo where you were doing a lot of like manufacturing weapons in the back garden of I think like a neighborhood in san francisco um i think or los angeles one of those i think it was like set in different bits of california originally and um huh. yeah i saw that and i've got a fairly vivid memory of it i thought it looked pretty good actually i was quite um quite taken with the setting and i thought it looked it, it was a it was a nice looking game um but yeah that has never materialized so you know that's um another uh sort of oddball um sort of game but um in terms of directly playing stuff i couldn't think of any examples really Actually, no, I have one final one here. So, Oh, you've got loads. Great. Yeah, so good question. It, it really is, yeah. So, again, this isn't a game I played. Um, it's a game that was demoed to me, and they cleverly cut the demo to um, have a different meaning. So, um, Batman Arkham Asylum, the first time I ever saw it was at this press event in, I think, 2009, and it was an event that also had, like, mini ninjas and something else there that wasn't that remarkable. And I remember just being like not entirely sold on this Batman game that was not based on the Nolan universe and, you know, mm. um, but nonetheless had these classic animated series actors in it. And they cut this demo very cleverly. So um, in the game, you might remember that when you're hit by the Scarecrow toxin, Batman finds Jim Gordon's dead body. And I think that, like, it's, it suggested to you with a cough. But in this demo, my memory is that um, you are Batman walking down these corridors and then you find Jim Gordon dead, but they don't give you the context of the Scarecrow thing. And then the demo ends. So you're like, oh, this is like a massive story moment where Jim Gordon dies. But 
you're actually um, being spared the spoiler of knowing that these like um, really elaborate scarecrow hallucination sequences are coming. So that was quite oh. an interesting example of how like a, a demo can be edited to have a different meaning. So, um, oh yeah, oh, how interesting. Yeah, some solid answers there, I thought. But uh, yeah, it was good. But made mine terrible. Mine, <laughs> yours was all this juicy stuff, and mine was. I think they moved a coin to the left in Mario Galaxy, <laughs> which absolutely blows as an anecdote. <laughs> well, I think it's partly because it's actually very rare for a game to get into the like public eye now before being like you know hidden from view and rebooted. That's quite an unusual thing to happen. So, uh, yeah, good stuff. So next up, Matthew, this is a really good question. This is from uh, John T- John Cheatham uh, on Twitter, or Cheatham. I'm not quite sure which, but um, very loyal listener. Messages us a lot, a lot, which I really appreciate. Um, you can set a Yakuza-style open world game in any city. Which one do you go for? So, um, Matthew, why don't you kick us off? I mean, is it really boring if I say Bath? <laughs> Oh, I've, because, actually, I've got Bath as one of my answers, so go ahead. Yeah, well, I've got two, I've got two. So I was thinking Bath just because it's got quite a small city centre, so it'd be quite easy to walk. Like it's quite easy to walk Bath in real life quite fast, so it would suit it quite well. Like you could get to a lot of different stuff. Bath's quite a kind of like touristy town, especially in the day. It's kind of got that buzz of uh, you know lots of people who aren't normally there and it's all kind of cafes and restaurants and sandwich shops it's very geared to visitors but you've also got the historical element which is kind of interesting i think what may be scuppers bath is that at night basically all the tourists leave and bath is incredibly quiet in this in the town center i always used to i don't know if you felt this when you first moved here i was always amazed walking home at like just how dead it was, like, after six o'clock. You know, it's, 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 it doesn't feel like a massively studenty town. Like, I imagine most people would go to Bristol for their thrills as well. As a nighttime place, it's not, like, bustling. You know, it's not a great opportunity for lots of, like, thumpings, as there is in Yakuza. The other place I was thinking of, I was trying to think of places which had loads of good food, because that's something I associate with Yakuza, is basically having loads of places to go and eat and look at all the food and the nice menus. Um, And probably the best eating I ever did in a short amount of time was when I went to Glasgow. Amazing density of of restaurants, a great, interesting city, like real, you know, you you just meet all these kind of really interesting characters there. I I found it like a super charismatic place. I think, yeah, like a Glasgow Yakuza would be all right. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I went to, um, I've only been to Glasgow once. That was when I briefly worked for a a Comic-Con. And I um, had the same feeling. Like, the city centre is really nice there. Like, you get some, like, um, obviously, like, rough sort of characters around every now and then. Like you do in, like, any kind of British um, city that isn't Bath. Because Bath is very, like, coddled and full of posh people. It's like... But it's they're kind of like high street where all of their restaurants are. It's like a beautiful district. There's so much good stuff there. Um, mm. so that's quite a good call, I think. But um, the so I picked Bath as well because I, I don't I know what the side quest would be, but I feel like that'd be a really fun thing to come up with. Like it's like a back page of a magazine kind of idea of like you know <laughs> yeah. some hoodlums are like um, harassing the hot dog stand man, and then you go and beat the shit out of them or like. I don't know. Um, it, it, like you say, though, there's not that many opportunities. Like, who do you fight necessarily? Do you fight like rich hippies, or like it's um... quite an elderly population? <laughs> yeah, it's like not... it would basically going around sort of decking quite old Tories. <laughs> I mean, you know, Which isn't, isn't uh, a horrible pitch. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, I, I would never encourage violence, but it's a video game premise. It's uh, you know, it's not bad. Um, you could do some great environmental takedowns in the baths, dunking people in that like fetid bath water. <laughs> 
that is a great call, actually. That is good. Yeah. Hitting uh, it with the audio tour guide stick, which has been, you can hear Bill Bryson giving you a tour of baths while you're hitting them with it. Uh, that would be great. Yeah, that's a, that's really, really good. Oh, man, that's uh, that's very amusing. Yeah, you could you could do stuff like uh, which kind of eateries would make the cut? Would, uh, would JC's Kitchen make the cut if, he's, um, <laughs> if he turns up that day, Matthew? <laughs> so for, for those listening at home that don't know what JC's Kitchen is, which is everyone uh, listening to this podcast, there's an incredible food stand which Sam's quite upset that, that it, it seems quite sporadic when it appears based on the weather. The first hint of bad weather, it doesn't turn up, which is quite heartbreaking because it's quite out of the way to, so to go there and see that it's not there. Um, I often joke that it's a bit like a persona uh, restaurant in that it's like only open on certain days based on weather conditions. Uh, but you don't level up if you go there. You just have really, really nice chicken. <laughs> yeah, so that was a serious in-joke I referenced there. But basically, when I was at Matthew's house last time, because we can legally go to each other's houses again now, um, I went on quite a long rant about how like you can never guess which days he'll be there. And like when I tweet his Twitter account saying, "Hey, are you around today?" Like he just there's no response, and there's nothing on the website. It just says um, these are our operating hours, like weather permitting, and it's so frustrating because it's like, oh, it's like slightly overcast, but it's not actually raining. So maybe if I go there, there'll be a chance he's there. Nope. So um, yeah, it's a really like rare spawn. It's like getting like you know you do a raid in Destiny, and then you might get the shit hot gun at the end, or you might not, and your mate will get it, and you'll be like, oh fuck. It's like that kind of um, vibe. Well, that got way too granular. But anyway, <laughs> that would make the cut. That nice falafel place, that would make the cut. What's that place you go to for breakfast every weekend, Matthew? Would that make the cut? Oh, Kingsmead Kitchen. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. Oh, yeah, that would yeah, that would 100% make the cut. I'd All of these places, though, I'd I'd often... I'd ask to be able to... In the game, you should be able to ask to sit inside. Because if you sit outside, you get attacked by seagulls. <laughs> Um, that should be a key part of it. Yeah, and like um, a big text flashes up on the screen and goes, seagulls, and then it's just like you fighting <laughs> some seagulls. <laughs> uh, yeah, that'd be good. Um, so Bath is good. The other um, one I had was, I think you could pick, there's a big chunk of London that I think fits this quite well. So if you go from like Soho to Leicester Square, you've basically got quite a good like grid-based Yakuza-style environment there. Because you have like there's like one massive one like massive kind of main road in between them, but um, there's loads and loads of good eateries around Soho. So I think that like that mm. is a that's a good place. London's a very boring suggestion, but I feel like um, you'd have a good variety of locations to go. It's even got an arcade, Matthew. So um, you could have a fight with a load of human statues. That would be good. <laughs> that is a great shout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that kind of works. I think Bath doesn't quite have the like. I don't know, like, um, obviously, the kind of whole thing with Yakuza is you encounter all these kind of wacky characters, and I just don't think it's quite got the diversity of, like, personality types, Bath, to make it happen. Like you say, after 11, it's basically dead, apart from the odd students, so, uh, (laughs) yeah. So, next question, Matthew. Way too much talk about JC's Kitchen there, though they do 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 great meat, I must say. Yeah, so where were we? We were on favourite video game-related playground rumours. I remember everyone at school believing the naked Lara dancing to the beat of Spice Girls Wannabe because it was written in an April issue of CVG. Um, so, Matthew, what are your favourite video game-related playground rumours? That's from Sulking Honky via Twitter. To tell you the truth, the big one which dominated playground chatter probably was like various Lara Croft nude cheats, which I know sounds terrible in, in this day and age, but, you know, when you're a dumb teenage boy, that's kind of... I don't know, that's the level of conversation. There was loads of rumours about... Yeah. <laughs> it sounds so seedy when you say it out loud. 
of various various routines you could do in in the mansion, the kind of training mansion, which would make Lara Croft be nude. Which, when you look at like that era, Lara Croft, <laughs> and she's just like this origami person. She's like so sharp. The polygons. The idea that you'd be like, yeah, <laughs> that'd be sexy. Um, yeah, what's it's very sinister. And she's basically a load of triangles. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> like, want... If you get turned on by triangles, then by all means. Uh, but there was loads of stuff about like jumping in and out of a swimming pool, and that was like the key. And yeah, I've like listen. I, I won't say I personally did it, but I've definitely been in rooms where people have tried that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. I can't say I ever really like um, had the sort of. Uh, I mean, we, you and I are from that generation that's on the very back end of like you could feasibly go into a public park and see pornography in like a forest and like oh yeah, and that was like so that sounds really grotty and sort of like um, serial killery, but that was the kind of like we were like right at the end of that age before you had like the internet in your hands basically. So um, yeah. the kind of like you know there are only so many like destinations for this um, you know for appalling um, straight young man horniness. So um, yeah, but I got... that, yeah, basically video games, video game Easter eggs, and films on Channel Five <laughs> late at night. I mean, how bad do things get? Where like you know, to get your rocks off, you have to see triangular Lara Croft naked in front of her butler in her mansion. So fucking weird. <laughs> oh. You're like, oh man, this this butler is really harsh in <laughs> harsh in the mood. <laughs> oh. I wish he'd leave. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm... that makes this whole lot worse. <laughs> yeah, the butler is what I think about when I think of the mansion. I'm like, oh yeah, there's that really fucking weird butler there who made those strange, strange noises. I don't want to be naked in front of him. Uh, so yeah, good stuff. Um, were there any others, Matthew, apart from Tomb Raider? There was that thing in Banjo Kazooie which was allegedly going to be connected to the sequel or some slot in cart. There was like a weird ice key or something. Which, which I think was like a cheat that didn't ever really amount to anything, or like the the, the subsequent bit that it would relate to never released. I, I can't remember the exact story. I'm sure someone will correct me on it. I've got a couple here. So um, the first one, I I may have, re- I think I've mentioned this on a very old episode of ours. By very old, I mean like November. So I went to school with this kid. I won't say his name, but he was a bit of a bullshitter, and he said that um, you could save Aerith in Final Fantasy VII with something called Gold Materia. And he found this information out by falling through a curtain at a games convention, like inverted commas, where a wise old man told him that information. So um, <laughs> that was like, I don't think he told me that directly, though. I think my friend Andrew told me that. So um, but that's a hilarious one, because the wise old man detail that like obviously outs it as bullshit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea that like E3, you accidentally fall into like an interview room at Nintendo. And then Miyamoto <laughs> just tells you like some deep, dark secret about marriage. <laughs> it's so like it's so implausible yeah um but the one i heard about that was real was that um, i i heard about it from a kid like the um the missing no pokemon thing that allows you to basically clone any item in the game so you can clone rare candies and stuff and um makes because of some kind of like maths error within the pokemon red and blue cartridge it makes like a really fucked up looking barcode monster appear um which i think is a great like kind of almost like horror-tinged Easter egg in that game. But uh, I remember hearing about that from this like quite nerdy kid in this park, and I went back and tried it, and it blew my mind that actually worked, because I'd obviously played Pokemon for tens of hours at that point, and it was like, oh, I can't believe there is still this this big secret that I just had no idea about. So um, 
that was one where it was true. Um, years later, I was amazed to find out that you can also um, do something specific to make Mew appear in the game and then just catch it. Like um, you can do that in the 3DS versions of the game, and it's um, that blew my mind actually. That I felt like I knew Pokemon so well, and to see a new Pokemon turn up was um, kind of crazy. I have no real relationship with later Pokemon games and like Gold and Silver, but with Red and Blue, I played them nonstop. So um, that kind of playground rumor blew my mind. Um, oh, I just I spent the whole time trying to make Mr. Mime's clothes fall off. <laughs> In front of his butler. In uh, front of his butler. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next up then, Matthew. So, um, <laughs> uh, How much are you looking forward to not being able to procure a Switch Pro? Asks Twitter Critter via Twitter. Yeah, I feel like this, uh, the, t- the very name Switch Pro is going to be out of date by the time this podcast, uh, either like a week or two after this podcast is out, basically, because... yeah. It's been widely reported that a Switch, um, not a successor, but like an upgraded Switch is going to be revealed. I mean, it's actually been really hard to follow the details of what this is. Like, a slightly more graphical heft, apparently 4K just output, but then, you know, like, these next-gen consoles can barely do, like, 4K, sort of 60 frames, so I don't know what a handheld Switch is going to be able to... The whole thing is quite perplexing to me on paper. Maybe the graphics will just look very 1080p, but, you know, output a 4K. But, um... I will probably buy one of these, Matthew, but not for a few years yet. I feel like I just I, I don't quite get enough mileage out of my Switch to make the upgrade. What about you? Oh, I will definitely be. This is this is the thing I want. Like, I feel kind of bad that I because I got a PS Five and an Xbox One X uh, Series X quite easily. Like, I didn't have any woes kind of pre-ordering them, and I feel like Karma is going to come back and make it quite hard to get this, which is something I do want. This because I I, I don't know. I'm playing a lot of Switch at the moment. Um, if it can like punch up Breath of the Wild even a little bit, I mean it's already a great looking thing. But I'd I'd happily see an even shinier version of it. I've played some stuff on Switch recently where like performance has been a bit of an issue. The Hyrule Warriors Two was on paper like really fun, really you know great characterful game, but um, it just ra- it just runs horribly on my Switch anyway. So I would I would happily have a shinier version. Yeah, I just I desperately want whatever this is. I don't even know what it is, and I want it. <laughs> I feel like the upgrade needs to be quite meaningful. Like I, I want to, you know, if it's a games that don't quite run at thirty frames, suddenly running at thirty frames, that won't quite do it for me. Like it has to be like, mm. if someone says Breath of the Wild is like two is sixty frames, and I know I do this all the time on this podcast, that's really embarrassing. But if there was like a substantial visual difference in that respect, then I would consider the upgrade for sure. But um. Yeah, I guess we'll see what it is. It's, I think it's exciting, though, that there's new hardware. Like, I'm not against them doing it. I think it's quite an interesting thing for Nintendo to experiment with. Because, um, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's it's weird because it's the it's the sort of portable mentality. You know, we wouldn't be at all surprised if this was just a straight portable and they were doing a new version of it. That happened all the time. They released about 18 different versions <laughs> of the 3DS. So it makes perfect sense. This is what Nintendo does. I think just because it's a home console, because it, it also has that kind of one foot in the the kind of home console sort of space it feels a little more unusual but i guess we'll find out when they're what is it a nintendo direct a couple of weeks away now i think yep but that's um gonna be games only so whenever this gets Ooh. revealed it will be outside of that either before or after so um Ooh. yeah but too many um too much smoke on this one for there not to be fire i think but um mm. yeah so I- i'm curious to see what it's what it's all about for sure and um yeah like uh welcome nintendo doing it personally 
I I would be entirely comfortable with the next like twenty years of Nintendo hardware was just like iterations on the Switch. That's really all all I kind of personally want from them, um, because mm. it's doing everything that I want a Nintendo console to do. Obviously, the kind of argument against that is that Nintendo is big into like innovation when it comes to like um, controller input and um, you know uh, basically like different sort of interesting things it does with the hardware. But um, personally, the Switch has given me everything I want from um, from that kind of games console. So uh, yeah. Next up then, Matthew. This is a good one. Uh, this is from uh, Jeremy Peel, um, a writer, very, um, very, very talented um, uh, games writer. And so, uh, yeah, we appreciate having the question from you, Jeremy. The more we hear about Deathloop, the more it sounds like Hitman's structure applied to Arcane's mechanics. We'd like to hear you two talk about that for obvious reasons. Do you want to kick off, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, the the, the Hitman connection definitely came out in the recent previews. I don't know if you how closely you've been following it, but... You know the the kind of way the game works is it sort of splits the island into sort of self-contained locations, and then you visit them at you visit them at like certain in, uh, parts of the day. It's not like you have the full roam of the island, and it's you know you know time's just ticking forward, and you have like twelve hours before it loops or whatever. It's it's quite kind of um, split into quite clean segments, which instantly makes you think of Hitman. Like if you go to this location in this time segment the same activities will all be always be happening so that kind of ticks a big hitman box which i'm all up for but what's what's more interesting is the idea of going to certain locations and like manipulating people so that they so it changes other locations at other times i think certain times of the day certain parts of the island will be like radically different like in how they behave and i think the the kind of the pitch of it is is trying to get a a perfect loop where you manage to get everyone in the right place to get them all at once, I think seems to be the the, the the vibe of it. So it's kind of like a... It sounds like a Hitman game where the Hitman levels kind of interact with each other on this kind of grander scale, which is, like, that's super exciting and interesting. Yeah, that's about as good a, like, a pitch for us specifically as you can sort of get. Yeah. I love the idea of that. Actually, I did some reading into this. I'll, I'll, I'll confess, I'm not following Deathloop, like, forensically, because I really, mm. really want to go into it fairly fresh and to kind of unpick it and discover it. But I did yeah. read a couple of previews just, just to try and get my head around the premise of it. And I do very much appreciate the idea that it is these eight targets. They have this looping day routine. And it's um, and then every other NPC has their own kind of routine. And it's about how you interrupt it and, um, and play with that. I think that's got enormous potential. It actually makes me think mm. about how what I thought Assassin's Creed was going to be, the first one. I thought, oh, is, mm. is it this game where you not necessarily they get them all in one place, but you know, you go kill this target however you want, knowing these things are going to happen. It kind of it always sounded a bit Hitman-y, um, the original Assassin's Creed, until you actually played it, and it was like, okay, I've got a knife and a sword and my fists, and that's all I can do in this entire game. Mm. But yeah, I, I I'm really I really dig it. I think that the um, like uh, Jeremy points out, it's um, Arcane's mechanics, so it's a very specific feeling, first person action, um, mm. which is adds like another layer of like complexity and simulation than made you'd get in Hitman, where the actions are I don't know, I don't want to say binary, but they're a bit more straightforward. I would say, yeah, a bit I'd, less precision needed. I'd say the one thing which does give me slight pause with this is that everything they've shown and the way they talk about it, the move set seems like a lot more geared towards action like 
stealth, stealth isn't as I don't know as key a thing in this game, or it, it doesn't look like it's a kind of corvo where you could go in like massively all guns blazing, or you've got a skill set which is basically about ghosting through the game. It sounds like it doesn't really do that or have that to it, which would obviously be quite a quite different to Hitman uh, in in that sense. But uh, so I'm kind of interested to see how that kind of action side of things holds up and and impacts it you know it still sounds super cerebral in this sort of like overarching structure and the way the kind of narrative plays into that and you like learn narrative clues to kind of manipulate the wider island so you know i'm I'm sure it'll be great i just uh i don't know i just need to kind of get it in my hands yeah for myself i personally think that a lot of that uh, i mean again i've not read about as about as much as you but I think that the kind of like um, a sort of very action heavy stuff they're promoting is very much like to make the marketing seem kind of approachable. So, you know, mm. if you play Call of Duty, you might consider buying this game, basically. I think that's what the that's the heavy lifting the marketing's trying to do and presenting it as all out action and all this kind of like, you know, um, sort of like big music. And, you know, you wouldn't look at it and think of Dishonored necessarily unless you kind of know Dishonored like we do. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I think that's part of it. It's like it's being positioned as this big PS5 exclusive, you know, one of very few for the year. Like um, they just uh, just before we record start recording this, they um, Sony just said that Horizon Two might not come out this year. They're not entirely sure yet, so this could end up being like the big exclusive yeah. that Sony has. God this of War year. as well definitely isn't this year now. Yeah, so you know after Ratchet and Returnal, it's basically down to like Deathloop. So um, that's um, you know it's significant for sure. So I think they have to make it look very like approachable to people, which are, it's something that you know Sony did with Returnal actually, which is a very hardcore game at its heart. So uh, yeah, I am. Um, I think that, yeah, that I can't wait to just pick it apart and see how it goes and, like, have lots of failed runs where I kind of see how the different, like, dominoes tip over. Like, that's... It's really appealing, the idea of all of these different Dishonored levels, like, existing in tandem and then interacting with each other like that. Like you say, mm. it's just, like, that's a killer premise. And um, I was quite pleased to see that some of the environments in the screenshots do look slightly dishonored actually. Like, it's not um, it's not all contemporary-looking, necessarily. It's, uh, it's sometimes mm. a little bit more kind of, like, run down on this... Um, island setting so uh yeah good stuff next up is what are yours matthew what's your most embarrassing piece of gaming tat says david lynch via twitter i'm assuming not film david lynch uh, nope that's my buddy david lynch who i used to work with at imagine so i um i'm afraid i couldn't think of this uh, of an answer for this one i've had loads and loads of tat but most of it is quite mediocre lots of like very mediocre t-shirts that i've um <laughs> only ever worn as like pajamas um, like I said, oh, I, think, yeah. I think it was slightly embarrassing when I was going around wearing Rockstar t-shirts in like um, 2010 thinking I was like the coolest guy alive. That was possibly slightly embarrassing. The shirts were cool, but I was not cool. So um, make of that what you will. <laughs> like, you ain't cool enough for the shirt. Did people shout that out at you? <laughs> You're not cool enough for that shirt. One guy stopped me and went, hey, where did you get that shirt? And I thought, oh, fuck, like uh, I'm the coolest guy alive. That was very good for my self-esteem. But um, oh, nice. bad gaming tab. I often think about like naff figurines and stuff like that. The best bit of gaming tab we got was, it's not really tat, it was the um, bathtub girl statue we got on PC Gamer sent to us by CD Projekt Red. Our, <laughs> our, our like um, PC Gamer's um, very famous in-joke come to life, basically. That was the, the best thing we got from a publisher. How about you, Matthew? I didn't get massive amount of tat. Like, you didn't get much from Nintendo. Nintendo weren't big on tat, like... They didn't really need it. The game sort of spoke for themselves. <laughs> when I saw the Cyberpunk demo at Gamescom a couple of years ago, I got one of those Cyberpunk statues of like the lady with the blades coming out of her arms. And it was mostly because I couldn't like fit it. You know, we were 
we were flying back, I think, and we just couldn't fit it in the bag. Or, you know, you, you didn't want to have that at the airport because it would look weird. And also partly because I just didn't really want it in my house. Um, though I did think I could probably sell this online, but you're not really meant to do that. So I just left it in a Gamescom hotel room. My cyber babe, um, as we called it um, at the time. <laughs> so that was that's kind of naff, but... Yeah, I don't know. I'm not a big gaming statue person, so I don't know. I, th- I think my idea of, like, naff and embarrassing probably doesn't align with most people's. I, d- I wouldn't want to, like, step on, hurt anyone's feelings. <laughs> There's obviously the Saints Row dildo bat that we've mentioned in a previous episode. Um... Oh, those were horrible, because there were so many of them in the office. <laughs> they were, like, just, you know, they must have sent a couple to the re- each relevant mag, because I swear one of those things was in my eye line for about five years at Future. <laughs> Like, wherever I sat in that office, you would definitely see a massive dildo, which isn't ideal. Uh, I imagine, like, that it's like that scene in The Dark Knight where the Joker comes in and just throws, like, a dildo baseball bat at your feet and another staff fryer and says, whoever beats the other one to death can come work for me, and then walks out again. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm afraid I don't have any other examples. I also got the cyberpunk woman, but I think I left mine in the demo booth. Or I gave, I might have given it to another uh, future writer. But um, mm. yeah, are you telling me that Catherine wouldn't want that on your mantelpiece, Matthew? Um, no, definitely not. I and mean, she's got quite a lot of like Final Fantasy figures and things like that. But I think a woman with like blades splitting out of her arm. It's, it's quite a horrible, violent scene. Yeah, I just don't know why you'd want it. She's like, in a- there's some cool stuff in Cyberpunk, which does look cool. It would look cool as a statue, but that's just a bit, I don't know. It's a bit unpleasant. It was really that really old art where she's in her knickers as well, right? You're like, why? Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, okay, that's enough about that. So, next up, Matthew. Hi, Sam, I'm loving the back page. Please could you and Matt tell us about your other favourite podcast? That's from Ian Chain on Twitter. So, why don't you kick us off, Matthew? What other podcasts do you listen to? Oh, well, I, I'm probably treading on your toes a bit here because we listen to a lot of the same stuff. Big fan of The Big Picture and The Rewatchables, which are two film podcasts made by The Ringer. I think it's fair to say the big picture is we've taken quite a lot of inspiration from it for this podcast. We both got into it last year, and they're kind of... uh, I think, well, what they are traditionally is maybe a bit different to what they currently are. I think traditionally they're just sort of covering the news and the latest releases, but with cinema kind of going to shit a bit last year because of lockdown, they started doing loads of retrospectives and lists and just sort of drilling into, like best of various directors and actors and it just showed off this like awesome like knowledge of basically you know largely focused i'd say in the last 40 years of cinema which is kind of what i'm you know really into and you know that show's always great for a good recommendation i really like their banter they've got some great guests they do some interesting interviews yeah that, that's 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 a definite recommend i agree i mean if our pod our podcast like has dna it's from like First of all, uh, Chet and John's reassuringly finite gaming playlist. That's like, you know, that was two top tens every week from two um, hosts who knew each other very well. And, um, you know, Mm -hmm. I went on that podcast myself as a guest host and I love listening to it. So that's definitely part of it. Matthew doesn't listen to this, but I do. I listen to Retronauts, probably the most famous of the um, retro gaming podcasts. They're very like Japanese leading in the games they cover, much more than we are. But um, that's those are their sensibilities and they're kind of following through with that, which I always respect in a kind of podcast. The big picture is another part of it, and I would say like the old PC Gamer UK podcast um, that some of the listeners um, listening to this also enjoy. That's another part. So those are all the kind of inspirations for for me anyway of like what this podcast is. And the big picture is the one that me and Matthew share the most um, sort of interest mm. in. That's a great podcast. Just like 
like even if there's one episode I'm not interested in, there's like another one that week where it's like an instant listen. So mm. yeah, but they they also do the rewatchables, which is like a a deep dive into a into a a great film, but specifically something with a rewatchable quality. So often they are amazing films, but they can also just be kind of comfort views or the kind of films that you always recommend to your friends. So it, it actually avoids some of the cliches of like classic films of the greatest films of all times. And they get quite deep and serious about not too serious, but certainly very deep on, on some just things which are maybe more entertaining rather than important or profound. And it's quite nice to hear, kind of dafter stuff treated with some reverence as well so i like that yeah the the rewatchables is um really good it's hosted by um bill simmons who i understand is a very well known like um sports personality pundit in the us but i came to that podcast with no knowledge of him whatsoever he's a very um a very funny man who like is makes some borderline inappropriate jokes that just fall the right side of it tonally and um ends up making <laughs> the podcast like slightly more endearing and a bit magaziney i think so yeah, I, he, yeah. he actually the, the dynamic between him and the the hosts reminds me a bit of like working with like Tim Weaver back in the day where you have someone who's you know senior been doing it a lot more you kind of look up to you know can really deliver really knows their shit but it's also just very funny very good affable people person draws out the best of you know in the people around them he's got that similar kind of quality yeah for sure um so yeah that's um th- those are kind of like a bunch of them i, I for the rewatchables actually when me and matthew have kind of kicked around ideas what a patreon could look like for us we thought about the idea of doing like individual podcasts on different games as part of like a big top 100 you know our favorite games of all time and then we we run through a different bunch of different categories for specific games that's something we thought about potentially down the line if we ever do a patreon mm. so um who knows maybe that'll come up down the line but um yeah, the other ones I noted here, I did want to give a shout out actually to um, David Turner of the uh, Computer Game Show, who was one of like the first people to tweet about us and like talking about us on his podcast. So I definitely want to give a shout out to them because they're like um, one of the um, big UK games podcasts. And there aren't actually that many around UK specific ones. I was kind of like um, quite surprised when that we were able to kind of find an audience but i think there's like not loads of loads of big ones so um but they're one mm-hmm. of them the other ones i um got here you must remember this the um classic hollywood um movie podcast loads of stories about basically men being complete bastards like 80 years ago um <laughs> like the, if there's a drinking game for that podcast it's like oh um howard hughes is inappropriate towards a woman and it's like you'll be fucking wasted <laughs> by the end of each episode yeah well, ours it's a, a famous video game character takes their clothes off in front of a butler <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah i like that one finally the one i was going to mention i um have listened to a lot of um the simpsons podcast talking simpsons which is from some of those retro noughts people as well like um very granular simpsons podcast because i really like the simpsons did you have any others matthew are there any gaming uh, ones that you yeah a couple of shout outs uh i really like the director's cut which is by the director's guild of america uh and it's it's always like a director of like a new release talking about their film but they're interviewed by another film director and it's sometimes really interesting just hearing a director like in the interviewer chair because it reveals a lot about their process. Like, for example, a, a, a classic episode I always point people towards is um, Christopher Nolan interviewing Edgar Wright about Baby Driver because Christopher Nolan, you know, has this kind of certain kind of seriousness about him when he's presenting his own work but actually hearing him talk about comedy and appreciation of action films and the kind of stuff Edgar Wright does just reveals a lot more about the man than probably an interview with him would do um you know and there's like Spielberg interviewing Scorsese and 
or various people interviewing uh, Quentin Tarantino, some absolutely killer episodes when they interview anyone interviewing Spike Lee because he's just such good value for money. Like he's he's so kind of um, impish one second and then incredibly like serious and angry the next. He's a he's like a, a fascinating kind of a presence. So yeah, a big big fan of that one too. Yeah, on the um, the game side as well, I wanted to throw in um, the AIAS Game Makers Notebook, which is Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, I think, in the US. Um, it's um, hosted by, I think, Robin Hunnicker and uh, Ted Price from Insomniac, and has mm-hmm. like loads of like good big interviews with people who, basically, as journalists, you would never get the same access, um, because mm. these people are obviously closely guarded, but get to... Um, uh, Ted Bryce asked some like quite searching questions about like being a leader in games and that sort of thing. So um, you can hear him talking to people like the lead designer of Spider Man and um, you know the guy, um, the creative director of Ghost of Tsushima. And yeah, it's a level of insight for like blockbuster games you don't get elsewhere. So I like that one. Um, I also liked. Uh, I like um, this is the last one from me, but Soren Johnson's podcast, Designer Notes. I think he kind of like hosts it uh, regularly, but. Soren Johnson, the lead designer of uh, Civilization Four, and has made a couple of games since then. Um, Offworld Trading Company and Old World, I think, are his games. And um, mm-hmm. his podcast, he kind of talks to a load of people uh, basically about their process. There's some really good Sid Meier episodes. And um, another really good one with the um, uh, the guy who, the lead designer of XCOM, whose name I can't remember. It starts with Jake. But um, yeah, designer notes. I recommend Solomon. One. Yeah, Jake Solomon. That was a really good episode. So um, yeah, I recommend tracking that down. But um, I, was, I was glad to be asked that one, actually, because um, that is not something we've talked about much on this. So uh, thank you very much. Ooh. So is this one I read out, Matthew? I think it is, isn't it? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, um, I'd love to hear more about the relationship between press and PR. It strikes me that both sides need each other. PR needs the press to promote their games, while the press needs review code from PR. But if the relationship is too close, then it could lead to allegations of undue influence on review scores, yet too much antagonism could end up with review code being withheld. How have you both dealt with these issues in the past? And what happens when a journalist colleague passes under the velvet rope to join a PR company? That's from Lewis Packwood on Twitter. I found with most of the things I've worked on, you inherit kind of existing relationships with certain PR. You know, like you join a mag and they already have a relationship with certain companies and you kind of pick up the baton on it and it's kind of predefined in a way. I wouldn't say like I'm massively chummy with any any PRs. These are people you can sort of end up spending a weird amount of time with, like if you go on a press trip, say, you know, or just going to events or whatever. So you can sort of, you do strike up sort of friendships, but I feel like when it comes to the work, it's pretty kind of, I I, I feel like I, you know, I've I've managed to keep it pretty kind of strictly business. Yeah, I would say that I'm kind of a similar position. I feel like um, maybe the generation before us, Matthew, were like a little bit, more kind of like personally friendly with PRs and I feel like it became a bit more of a machine by the time that we sort of like entered the industry yeah. a bit more turnover and a bit more like a bit less kind of like a face to a name and all that stuff you know we arrived just at the end of the kind of like the big age of like massive press trips and stuff and I think there just used to be a lot more of that stuff which is where you know you just spend so much time it's like going on holiday with someone like you're going to naturally bond with them. It's quite, you know, it'd be quite weird to spend five days in a f- foreign city with someone and like not try and get on. So it wasn't a huge amount of that. Also, like a lot of the people I, you know, I, it's just changed so fast. Like there seems to be a lot of movement in in that particular industry, and people move on. You know, their PRs, and then they move on to other things. You know, there's someone who I worked with, you know, for years at Nintendo, and then they, I think they work at Lego now, for example. So you just never ever encounter them ever again. And I don't have any problem with peers who decide to go the PR route at all. I mean, it's 
kind of a quite it's it is one of the kind of career paths for a games journalist you know because there is a natural limit on what you can do in games journalism and you know some people want something different and that is an obvious thing to step into i agree like um i think that you know uh, games journalism to pr is absolutely like a viable a viable route and there's no like you know there's no kind of iffiness to doing that there's a very much a sense that like once you've passed under that it's not the same dynamic you don't have the same kind of like relationship in terms of how you talk about you know professional sort of matters basically so um yeah no Mm. absolutely no problem with it whatsoever okay so next up matthew is one of yours yeah hello gents hope all is well with you loving the podcast ideal for working from home or for the background during gaming sessions i agree thank you for that uh so thank you very much uh my question is that's terribly self-serving i should have cut that bit (laughs) (laughs) no it's Uh, now because it's funny yeah my question is this uh was there a game that you were unhappy in reviewing but eventually grew to love or the reverse a game you really liked and enjoyed while reviewing but haven't played again Thanks for a great podcast and informed chat about the games industry. That's from Ryan Cobain via email. Yep, Ryan. Via email. Why did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I um, I appreciate Ryan's correspondence, um, Ryan. So, Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, big into the uh, podcast, so thank you. Um, so I actually don't have an answer for the first one, like a game that I didn't enjoy reviewing that eventually grew to love. I'm quite, um, when I've made my mind up about something, that's kind of it for me. Very rare that my perception is sort of turned around. Um, yeah, I can't think of like... I, I, there are some examples, like I mentioned on the game review schools we got wrong, like near, where I feel like I, I just missed what it was that people thought was the magic of that game. But, you know, my relationship with the game still hasn't changed. I, I still reflect on that as a game that I wasn't massively into. I will play that mm. the, uh, Replicant at some point. Um, but the other way around... Um, so games I played a lot at review and enjoyed then didn't play again. The Division 2 is one of those. That's simply because it's a live service game. I played it for like 60 hours, reached the end game, and um, none of my other friends were playing it. So it just kind of like died on the vine for me, even though there's a bunch of stuff I wanted to do in that game, including the raids. But um, the problem is, when you're playing live service games with people in their 30s, it's a big ask when people are already playing Destiny to start playing The Division or another game like that. So... Mm. That's one case where I stopped playing it, not because I didn't like it, but because the circumstances didn't allow it. Uh, do you have any mm. answers for these, Matthew? Uh, yeah, weirdly, I was going to say with near, you know, the same. I didn't really dig it back then, but I have been replaying the re-release recently and enjoying it a lot more and uh, mainly just digging the music and the kind of vibe of it. And I don't know why... I didn't click with that as much the first time round. Um, I don't think that like Near Automata kind of like unlocked some appreciation of Near that I didn't have before. I just don't know where my head would would have been that when I wrote that review um, that I that I didn't gel with this stuff, which now seems very appealing to me. Yeah, so Near weirdly is one of those things. Like an, another one jumped out was Smash Brothers Wii U and 3DS, which I loved when I played them for review, but I just didn't carry on playing them. And likewise, I don't really play Smash Brothers Ultimate. I have it, but I don't care. You know, they are definitely the Smash Brothers I've played the least, even though they're fantastic Smash Brother games. For whatever reason, I'm just not playing a lot of local multiplayer. And but they they would have been, you know. If I was, you know, 17 again and living at home and had my brother around, we would be playing those games and having an awesome, awesome time. But yeah, it's just like with you, my gaming habits don't always align with what I naturally enjoy. Yeah, time is like a huge part of it. I am. Yeah, I had the same relationship with um, Smash Bros. Ultimate too, where it was like, uh, I 
I know this is a game that I would have app, I would have played to death when I was like 15, but yeah. now it's just, you know, a new DLC character comes out and I've not even downloaded the update to play them yet and yeah. Yeah, that's just the way it is, um, unfortunately. Uh question 14. Hi guys. Loving the podcast so far and it's an absolute blast every week. Thank you so much for that. Any intention of doing video episodes at some point? Would love to see Matthew chuckling at something minuscule while rustling with a packet of Rennies. Also, when will we see the fabled Rich Stanton make an appearance? Keep up the good work. That's Owen Christie via email. So when are you and I going to launch our hot tub channel on Twitch, Matthew? That's going to be any day now, right? <laughs> oh, jeez. I don't think anyone wants that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think like uh, t- the the point I was saying to get there is I'm currently too fat to be on video. Um, I may or may not lose weight in the future, but... Um, yeah um if- uh yeah i i like doing this as a, i like doing this as a podcast like we may we may uh start uploading to youtube just for convenience sake if people happen to enjoy listening to podcasts through that but as an actual video element i i don't know if it would add anything to see you know two slightly sweaty faces maybe a f- few too many chins <laughs> I think I'm up to it's... I think I'm up to about three chins max at the moment. Oh, um, nice! So if I can Just keep leveling up, <laughs> that's the stat you're investing in I've chins. Al- I've always got two because I've got quite a small chin. But um, I feel like <laughs> if I can cut it down to two for, from three, then I'd be a happy man. But I, I've thought about again. We've thought about streaming before and stuff like that. But it's um, I don't know. It, it's that thing if I. I personally just podcasts really fit my lifestyle well so i'm basically making the form of media that i enjoy Mm. which is uh, you know how i prefer to work i don't necessarily think i've got the skills to kind of like operate in video like i don't know how to edit video there'd be a lot of cross wipes if i was doing it but yeah um (laughs) nothing wrong with a good cross wipe (laughs) i'd love to do things like video essays and stuff i see some really good ones out there and i'm like i i could definitely apply my sort of um publishing expertise to that but it's not a field i've really been trained in um but uh, yeah, I think I agree with you, Matthew. Not sure what the upside is. What about the Rich Stanton part of the question, Matthew? That requires yeah, you to well, send a I'm message, sure, right? Yeah, I'm sure we'll get Rich on at some point. I mean, he is a very, very knowledgeable man. He's worked pretty much the same kind of period that we've worked in games. Likes a lot of the stuff we're into. We just have to get something that really uh, you want. You want to apply apply that uh, as best you can. All that knowledge. So you want to channel it into the right episode. But I'm sure we'll. I'm sure we'll tempt him on at some point. Plus, he's got kids, so that's like another factor. Um, yeah, there is that. The other thing is that um, we do have the 20th anniversary of Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty coming up later this year, and that might be a Ooh. good um, way to get Rich involved. But um, yeah, I definitely. Those absolutely brilliant series of articles about Metal Gear for, I want to say, Eurogamer? Yeah, they're amazing. I would I would love to... Uh, yeah, basically, I think like um, my dream of this podcast is we'd eventually have an episode on each of the different Metal Gear games, and Rich is on each of those, mm-hmm. but um, we'll see. That's a good one. Okay, next up, Matthew, one of yours. Hi, chaps. Thanks so much for doing the podcast. I could listen to anecdotes about chain-smoking Japanese game developers, unpleasant knee injuries, and Rennies ad infinitum. Yeah. That's good. That's all we're good for. Um, I've just got a new PlayStation 5. Having skipped the PS4 and the Xbox One in favour of a Switch, I'm now in the position of having an entire generation of great, but more importantly, dirt-cheap games to catch up on. So if you were in my position, where would you start? What would be the first couple of games you'd pick up? That's from Theo, who emailed us. Yeah, so... First of all, uh, Theo, I would say if you haven't listened to our Best Games of the Generation podcast, that's like um, yeah. two top 30 lists over two episodes. 
still our most popular podcast and uh, people are always downloading that one you know that's as comprehensive a take on that generation as you can get really from us uh yeah so yeah but to directly answer the question from my end matthew i've um i've got a very simple list here dishonored 2 obviously um spider-man remastered which you can get on ps5 if you're not played spider-man on ps4 then Mm-hmm. This is a shinier version of it. You get it with the um, deluxe edition of Miles Morales on PS5. Uh, Uncharted 4 I've put here as well, and the Nathan Drake collection, because I just really like the Uncharted games. And um, mm. yeah, that's um, I think those are a good starting points. Um, and uh, the Shadow Colossus remaster I put as well. Quite cheap, but a very nice way to show off a um, uh, very old game with nice new graphics. What have you picked, Matthew? Yeah, I, I was just thinking, if you've got a PlayStation 5 and you've got PlayStation Plus, uh, the, the 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 little kind of collection of free games you get with that is like a really good starting point. Mm. You've got like Uncharted 4 in there, Resident Evil 7, Final Fantasy 15, like a good laugh for free. Monster Hunter World I really liked. Uh, I've also put Batman Arkham Knight pit- plucked out from that list. Looks absolutely, still absolutely super cutting edge looks amazing that that you know there's like 20 games there that you know are basically free with plus so you should just give those a go i really really like persona 5 royal as well feels like a bit of a definitive ps4 game for me just persona 4 in general but royal is the best version of it but yeah so if you're into jrpgs get on that but i mean it's quite it's quite exciting isn't it the idea of like being able to delve in because i remember i didn't have a playstation 2 and i bought a whatever the last iteration of it was the very slim one and just like emptied out the pre-owned section at like game station in town and had just an amazing time playing like the best hits of ps2 it's like a it's a really great way to enjoy a console i think coming to it late and buying everything for like 99p yeah what did you um pick up in that on ps2 during that time matthew the metal so like the metal gears definitely played two and three what else did i play on it that's when I played Tomb Raider Anniversary as well. That might have been new. Final Fantasy XII. Oh, loads of stuff. Mm. Oh, Bully. Oh, that was great. Silent Hill 2. Akami. Silent Hill 2. Oh, no, no, not that. Mm, too scary for you, that one. Too scary, yeah. Mm, that's cool, though. <laughs> um, yeah, I've, I've not had this for a long time now where... Um... The closest I've got is uh, I got given, uh, or like, you know, I'm borrowing a VR headset from someone on Tech Radar team who I work with. And um, that was a thing where I was like, oh, okay, there's actually like at least 10 essential VR games now. And that was quite cool to come to. I've still not plugged in the VR headset, despite having it for six months. But I will someday, damn it. But yeah, I uh, empathize. It's a cool, cool thing. Um, you're in for a good time, I think. Um, yeah. PS5, just uh, some of those upgrades for the the PS4 games are really good too. So, yep, I agree. That collection of PS Plus games on PS5, really good starting point. And you get Persona 5 for free with that. So, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. So, next up, Matthew. What's the game or series where the two of you are widest apart in terms of your opinions? Have you ever tried to persuade each other that your own point of view is the correct one? And what theory do you both of you have for your friend's obvious wrongness? That's from Mike Grant. Um, I actually really struggle with this one, Matthew, because I feel like you and I, even if we're not closely aligned on something, totally understand where the other person's coming from. What do you think? Generally, the only thing I could really think of is that you're into like you're more open and into service games than I am, and I just have no like I have no interest. I keep saying it's because I'm always moving forward and I've always got to play the next thing, but I don't know if actually I had all the time in the world like I would play a Destiny two, for example, and you've played a lot of that. <laughs> On an individual game front, I'm not I'm not mad about Rocket League. Like I don't really like it. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, it's I mean it's like. Uh, do you think that Rocket League is like bad though, or do you think it's just not for you? 
Uh, no, it's, it's totally not for me. I mean, this is the problem. Like, there's there's very there's very few things which are like beloved or critically acclaimed, which I think are bad. Like, normally I'll play them and they're just not for me. Hmm. You know, like Horizon Zero Dawn, for example, is just not for me. I don't think it's bad. Just I I could just I know what doesn't click about it for me, and 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 it's fine that it does for other people. Yeah, it's tough. I think we're just too reasonable to have like major beef over games. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I don't play many things I truly don't enjoy either. So, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff Matthew's played that I want to play that I don't have opinions on. Like, um, but nothing. Yeah, nothing that strongly. I um, I think it's like bad or anything like that. So uh, yeah, I'm afraid you, we're just too agreeable. You also you definitely like Super Mario 3D World much more than. <laughs> Than I do. That's quite a good one, yeah. Because I brought a very specific experience to play in that game that I am um, where mm. I kind of like lionize it. But I think I think that might be you more against the grain on that one than other people because oh, if you're very oh, yeah, like definitely because you've yeah. got such a specific idea of what a great Mario game looks like that I think it or like what the true greats of Mario are rather that it doesn't necessarily like um, fit that lineage. So I totally understand where you're coming from with that one. Um, mm. So yeah, again, not the, the- a major disagreement. The game that I have this the most with other people and people, you know, I've got friends who I could tell for a while were tiptoeing around it, but have since been a lot more frank about it is Skyward Sword, um, which I I really, really like. I really rate it. But I've, I've, I've got friends who at the time were like, eh, and I could tell that they, they didn't completely agree. But now they're very much like, fuck you. So um, <laughs> that's, you know, it's nice to have it out in the open. And I'm looking forward to like round two of that when it comes out in July. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, if there's a podcast I'm like excited about recording, or, or like an episode of this podcast, it is the best Zelda games episode that will ha- encompass <laughs> the Skyward Sword chat. That's going to be really fun. So uh, yeah, people can look forward to that in July. I'll, I'll be buying that remaster as well, Matthew, so we can, um, we can relitigate it. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, go on then with the uh, next one, Matthew, number 17. Have you played It Takes Two? If so, did you play it? Who did you play it with? And do you rate it as an early Game of the Year contender? Says Pikmin D via Twitter. Uh, an easy one for me. I have not played it at all. But you have, haven't you, Matthew? Yeah, I have. I played through this with Catherine. I had a really good time with it, which was uh, a pleasant surprise because I really didn't like the last one he did, um, the co-op one, The Way Out. I thought that was... Absolute garbage, <laughs> but this one was uh, very, uh, very sweet, very imaginative, super colourful, mechanically really varied. Had a little bit of the Nintendo magic in terms of taking an idea and really like pumping it for all it's worth. So, you know, in this, you're these two little puppets who are kind of going through this world trying to turn back into uh, pair uh, people, basically. And uh, but every stretch of the game kind of gives you each a a sort of uh, a unique kind of gadget which you have to use to help the other player so it's got some nice uh, sort of asymmetrical stuff in terms of your abilities the gadgets you get are actually pretty varied and have quite fun use i don't think it is quite like nintendo tier in terms of like how it feels as a platformer and i i don't think the gadgets are quite like while they're really like imaginative and they find lots of uses for them i don't know if they've just got like a a, like a free form playfulness to them that i think like the best ideas in like a mario game has for example and but that some people have mentioned this in the same breath as nintendo is like i mean that's it's a huge compliment to that to that team and definitely a sign of like of how good the work is yeah i i 
I don't know if this is a game of year contender for me. Like, it depends how the rest of the year goes. It's definitely some of the most fun I've had so far this year. It was let down a bit by... It's very overwritten. It's got really long cutscenes. I didn't really like the characters. And so every time they're blabbing away, I I found like it it really sort of sank. It should have had more confidence to just barrel on in its levels and just had them chatting away through the levels. Although there is one bit where they sort of assassinate a cuddly toy, which is genuinely one of the most... uh, Like, one of the funniest things I've ever seen in a video game. It's like a really rare moment of dark humour that's, like, perfectly executed. Like, not even Rockstar have have nailed the kind of grim comedy of of something in this way. So you should probably play it just for that. Hmm, interesting. When it comes to um, uh, Game Pass Ultimate, the EA play thing i will um mm. i will give that a go with my with my partner i expect yeah, yeah it's it's good it's quite substantial so it's like a decent like 10 hours and it you know it does rattle along lots of and it's gorgeous and yeah a lot to like hmm. yeah interesting stuff um yeah i heard that the heard the writing was um not the best thing about this game but the gameplay was it's very just good just too much of it mm. it's a self-indulgent ah okay fair enough well yeah, there you go good um good answer so Number 18, Matthew, is um, what unique gimmick would you like a next-generation console to have, PS6, etc., that isn't just more power? I'd like the next Nintendo console to force all games to use exaggerated Wii motion controls, whether they are useful to that game or not. Mm. So that's from Danny Man. Uh, what do you... Um, do you have an answer to this one, Matthew? Uh, I was struggling to think... Of, I don't know if I've just got no imagination. Like The things I want are, are kind of present this generation in terms of like super-fast loading... Um, <laughs> You know, little kind of quality of life things. Um, I really like the uh, motion slash hand controllers that you get with some VR headsets. And I really like what they allow you to do in game. And I don't know if it's just part of the VR magic, which is why they feel so good and work so well. But I'd be interested to see someone do that kind of controls, maybe in a non-VR, you know, you know, some kind of motion controller, which isn't like motion wands, but, you know, it's kind of finger-led and grip-controlled. Um, I really like that stuff in VR, which I'd maybe like to see on console, but PlayStation might do that if they uh, revamp their VR headset and come up with new controllers, so who knows. I think that could be massive, this generation, you know, Sony's um, VR thing. Like, I think that mm. they were just on the cusp of it last time, and... We've seen like the um, Oculus Quest become like a bigger and bigger deal. Like that's like an actual oh. successful platform, as far as I know. Um, so, you know, I um, I think that could be big. Yeah, I agree. Like um, in some ways, I think it's kind of a shame that motion control has been like basically reduced to VR because what we saw in the Wii and then the Wii Motion Plus has basically been perfected in these VR controllers. But people mm. don't really talk about it like they're the same thing. Um, mm. And personally, I really fucking miss light gun games. Um, not necessarily yeah. like Resident Evil light gun games like Matthew. Although, you know, hey, <laughs> if uh, Matthew Castle Productions want to make more of them, I'm not going to stand in their way. Um, we shall. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I kind of feel like we didn't get everything out of motion control. I feel like it just came and went too fast because like everyone kind of, uh, you know, got really excited about the Wii on a kind of like mainstream level, but then, you know, hardcore players de- deemed it a bust and therefore it kind of went away. And mm. now we just don't have it anymore in the same form, which seems like kind of a mm. shame because, I don't know, um, there was more more to do, like you say. But uh, mm. yeah, the only other other thing I had here was like, I'm um, um, sort of like moderately curious about what something like remote play looks like if it becomes more like airplay on um, 
uh, like you're watching on YouTube or something where you hit a button and then maybe the game's on your phone and you have one of those like razor grip controllers around your phone and you just go consider uh, continue playing somewhere else and it's instantaneous, mm. like um, game streaming stuff. I was reading a thing that like um, 5G mobile networks might make a big difference in terms of like the sort of, uh, you know, uh, response times, I guess, of um, streaming games and how that might be more viable. Um, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious for that stuff, but I, I agree with Matthew. I think the the PS5, like, apart from the the wacky way it looks, this gigantic thing with, like, a big collar, it is, like, a really fucking good console. I love owning one. And, um, mm. yeah, the bigger hard drive. That's kind of all I need. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, that was a boring answer from me. But, um, yeah, why don't you read out our next one, Matthew? Hi, both. Amazing work on the pod. I genuinely look forward to my Friday mornings when the latest episode goes live. Good to hear. First of all, if you could bring one game magazine back from the dead, what would it be? Secondly, what's your favourite games mag that's still published? Finally, what's a new games mag you'd like to read in a hypothetical future? Also, draft idea for a future episode, you could draft a squad of mag employees with bonus questions around type of games mag, regular features, free gifts, and how you'd launch the first issue of the mag, says Zach Evans via email. That is a potential draft idea. I, mean, I might get into the... end up going into the weeds a bit as we sort of pick apart... Is this like fictional people for the magazine or real people? Because it might hurt people's feelings. <laughs> it might be a bit wacky if one of us is like, all right, well, I pick Rich, Rich Stanton. And the other one's like, well, I pick Kieran Gillen. And it's like, that's a really fucking odd draft to do. Um, yeah. And then I'm like, Wario. <laughs> yeah, he's, like, Wario's the, the production editor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there aren't that many journalists in um, games either. So you'd struggle to um, pick a few of them out of there. That's a tough one. But Matthew, why don't you kick off with yours? Because I feel like you've surely got a very direct answer from bringing one Games Mag back from the dead, haven't you? Well, yeah, if I bring Games Mag back from the dead, I'd obviously bring back Endgamer, because I really like making it. And also, I feel like Nintendo, the games it's making now, we'd just be able to have so much fun with it, and it'd just be a perfect match for that mag. There's loads of, like, interesting, kind of weird Japanese stuff on there as well. I don't know, it's just perfect. It's perfect for that magazine. So I would, I would love to do that. Yeah, Endgamer. In terms of my current favourite games mag, probably Edge. We still subscribe, we still get it through. I mean, there's, there's not many mags these days, but, you know, for my money, it kind of, it covers all the bases. I still love their their reviews. Um, I think they've got some really great people writing for them, really great, insightful features. If anything, because, like, there are so many kind of interesting people sort of floating around not necessarily all game freelancers, but people who used to work for Edge as well, who don't work for it now, who are available. But it has quite a, an interesting pool of people to tap into. So, yeah, you, you know, every once in a while you'll still get a feature from, like, Alex Wiltshire, who used to work on Edge, and he does some really great deep dive stuff. Gets some amazing access to developers and puts together these really interesting kind of, like, insights on, on, on kind of various weird corners. And then, you know, they give... Indie, you know, they elevate some indie games as well and give them like the kind of coverage and depth that you would normally only see mags given to like AAA games, and they still land the big AAA covers as well. I, I think Edge is a, still a great mag. And as for a hypothetical mag, probably something kind of retro gamery, but that has a cut off pretty much pretty the same kind of period that we cover on this podcast probably cuts off at 2005 and just tells stories and retrospectives and celebrates kind of sort of contemporary games games of the last 15 years um i'm not really interested in like proper retro when i say proper retro i mean like 30 years ago 40 years ago it's just it's just not an era i particularly grew up in or care for so 
yeah, that would be my those would be my picks. Well, it's interesting, Matthew, because um, that for the, the third um, question, finally, what's the new games mag you'd like to read in a hypothetical future? That is basically the exact same thing I came up with, um, which oh, is right. <laughs> I think I've mentioned in a previous episode the idea of um, millennial retro gamer. It's basically my dream magazine. Right. <laughs> um, it's like, like I say, a lot of the uh, the values of this podcast, like um, in the form of a magazine. So. Um, yeah, it's uh, basically it's a magazine that starts with the it has a hard start in the 16-bit era and a hard end when the PS4 launches. Like that's basically the period. Okay. Because it's just I mean maybe like it has to be 10 years ago or more to count as retro. Maybe that maybe that's the cutoff, but basically it covers 16-bit to like early HD. That's kind of what I'd be interested in sort of like seeing in a mag just Ooh. because I feel like retro gamer like does Darren does like loads of amazing stuff with that magazine has a really loyal readership and I like massively respect um what they make but I'd love to do stuff like um you know having uh Silent Hill 2 on the cover one month and next month it's like the Simpsons hit and run or something like um yeah yeah, yeah. it basically looks I like mean, they yeah. do I feel like more and more games are entering what retro gamer can cover and they're doing more covers where you see things you're like oh yeah I guess that counts now I'd probably be brutal and cut off. I probably wouldn't include the 16-bit era. <laughs> I'd probably start 32 forwards. Yeah. But... Do you not have much relationship with 16-bit era, Matthew? No, I do. I just, I just not particularly interested in hearing about it because I feel like I've been reading about that stuff in retro columns in in games magazines that I've written for. Like, <laughs> I feel like, oh, here we go. It's linked to the past again. Here's all the anecdotes. You know, there's just, I don't know. It feels a bit tapped out that that particular period. Like I, I'm, I'm much more interested in hearing, you know, newer stories about slightly newer things. Yep, it definitely sort of uh, no disrespect to those eras or the people who enjoy. Oh, no, not at all. All the people <laughs> who cover, I mean, you know, they're covered brilliantly by retro gamer. So no, yeah. no, what I was going to say was actually Matthew is that I feel like um, the idea of what retro is has been like uh, maybe preserved in amber a bit by gatekeepers on the internet. Like, um, yeah. Like, I feel like what that SNES was retro ten years ago, and it's still retro now. But if you talked about a three D game, people might be like, "Oh, that's too far." And it's like, well, maybe you're just old now, and it's fine, you know. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, millennial retro game would be one of mine. Um, this is a really weird one, but I kind of really to bring a mag back. I would really like official PlayStation Two magazine to just release, and it's like in in full across multiple years, exactly as it was. And I would like to go and pick up a magazine and read previews of Time Splitters and like Unreal <laughs> Tournament, and then like pick up the Devil May Cry issue and then play like the WWE SmackDown 2002 demo, and like that. Yeah. I would really dig that. Just the, the idea of like even with Edge as well, I'd love to like buy issue one of Edge and t- two of Edge completely reprinted and just do that every mm. month. Um, That'd be cool. But um, yeah, let's move on to the next one then, Matthew. So is it me reading out now? I think it is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. If you could take any modern game and add a Dreamcast portable VMU minigame aspect to it, what game would you pick and what would the minigame be? Um, That's from Alex Hater on Twitter. Do you have one, Matthew? I've got a couple of suggestions for this. Uh, One would be doing it for a Yakuza game. Like if you did one in the mid-90s that's set at the height of Tamagotchi Mania, and he just has like a Tamagotchi in game and you have it on the VMU because that's pretty much all those things are ever used for, wasn't it? With like virtual pets. Yeah. Um, I thought you could use it in like Ace Attorney and have the uh, VMU as like the Magatama as it lights up, you know, it kind of makes noises when people are bullshitting in game. Like have it as a, a real world prop for something that exists in game. 
and then when you're not playing it, you could have like a little virtual pet kind of gumshoe on it, and you feed like noodles to him and basically <laughs> look after him. That's my that's my pitch. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that's good. I I really like a Yakuza one. If they ever do a Yakuza Zero sequel, they should totally have Tamagotchis in it and set it at like 1998 or something. Um, oh, that'd be great. Yeah, they should really do that. Uh, my more boring Yakuza suggestion was that um, you do all of your nightclub management on um, on your VMU, and then you plug it back in, oh. and any money you've made goes back into the game. Might be a bit complex to do on that little screen, though. But, um, yeah, um, selecting Miracle Johnson to manage your nightclub or whatever. Um, yeah, so <laughs> there's that. And I also thought um, you could do planet scanning from Mass Effect 2, could go onto the VMU. Oh, yeah. uh, they were quite boring suggestions, I'm afraid. Um <laughs> So, well, I was looking at what it was used for, and I was scrolling down the Wikipedia page, and was just like, "Man alive, this was this was not like good value for money." This, <laughs> this idea, yeah, it felt like um, all of the sort of like people who had like a marketing agreement with Sega were sort of like forced to find ways to use it and did it begrudgingly. That's what it felt like, <laughs> and then otherwise it was just Sega doing it. But uh, yeah, yeah, a cool idea, probably not very well implemented, but um, seemed exciting to me in 1998. Anyway, um, cool. So next up, then Matthew. Um, that's one of yours. You often talk about the times you've worked with fun, talented and inspiring people. But what's the longest period you had to work closely with someone you could not stand? <laughs> and as a follow up, how did you survive? Love the podcast. Refreshing to hear two good friends with such a genuine respect for each other. Thanks, says Benji via email. Oh, yeah, to be honest, I, yeah, thank you very much. You have to go. I have to go back more than a decade to f- think of a time where I work with someone I can't stand. It's like been a long, long time. So, I think a big part of like working in, you know, being in the workplace is learning to work with people you don't like. But yeah, I don't know. I can't. I actually don't have. Um, you know, I I wouldn't talk about anything this sensitive on the podcast anyway. Even though I think the question is quite funny. What about you? Matthew? Yeah, it's huge. It's yeah, it's hugely indiscreet. Uh, and if you ever went out with like games journalists, you know, to the pub. You'd probably hear a few people get slammed at some point, um, but uh, yeah, in, in a podcast, pr- probably not. Nah. Um, I, I would say I've I've generally lucked out, and on the teams I've worked on, I've really liked everyone. I've gotten really well. I mean, there's there's sometimes a bit of probably the most tension I ever had was like joining O and M, just because they had, you know their team in London the whole time and, and just kind of getting used to everyone and everyone getting used to you. And it's it's always strange when someone gets, like, bust in, you know, because on a lot of mags, promotion happens, like, within. So it's quite odd when, like, a complete outsider comes in. And if there's going to be any tension, it tends to be around that person. But, you know, I won them over by being my usual charming <laughs> self. Yeah, I had a similar thing with um, PC Gamer, like, in no way, like, you know, um, you know, sort of any of the stuff that Benji describes here, like, um, you know, Mm. I got on well with everyone, but I was an outsider too, and I was coming in and um, editing and have, you know, wanted to prove that I could do it and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, yeah, Yeah. but no, but no, like, um, no sort of big grudges or anything like that. And um, as as Matthew says, wouldn't say those on the podcast anyway, generally speaking. (laughs) The teams are always like the best thing about the job. It's always about like yeah. Even till now, like the tech radar team I work with, like a team of completely like lovely people who I really enjoy working with. So like um, you know I yeah, and PC game was the same, and um, yeah, I, I I miss a lot of the people I used to work with. I imagine so um, yeah yeah, people are good in the industry generally speaking in my mm. experience. So last question, Matthew, is there a quote from a game that you can't resist declaring under certain circumstances? I find it impossible to leave the house alone without saying good luck in the style of General Pepper from Star Fox, despite my fe- <laughs> my wife and kids being way too cool to get the reference. That's from 
Jolly Nice Soup on Twitter. I um I maybe should have said that in the way that Pepper says it. Is it like good luck? Is it like that? Is that how Pepper says oh, it? I actually, if you put a gun to my head, I couldn't tell you how he says it. <laughs> yeah, um, me neither, to be honest. Um, even though I have played, uh, you know, Star Fox sixty four, but I don't. Remember yeah, I just them, don't but, remember. Yeah. So, um, yeah, do you have uh, any quotes, Matthew, that come to mind or that you quote often? Sometimes, like saying thank you, like Beedle from Wind Waker, the guy who runs the shop. <laughs> he goes thank you, <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's not like that's just irritating. I don't say it. I often think when something doesn't work, I think that <laughs> there's a quote in the Discord pointing clip games. When something doesn't work, he goes, that doesn't work. And I always think that in my head. And my I played those games so much at home that I sometimes hear my family say that quote at home when something doesn't work. That doesn't work. Yeah, those are the two that jumped out for me. <laughs> yeah, there's like a few sound bites that get wedged in your brain. Obviously, like the Resident Evil 4 merchant lines are all burned into my head from playing oh, yeah, that game. Yeah, yeah. Like that is like, obviously, like an extremely iconic voice, an iconic character. And like the way he says it is so distinctive, it is like, <laughs> thank you. The way that's all like burned into your brain, what are you buying? All that stuff is like, you know, on the tip of my tongue. If I'm out with my friend Andrew at a pub back when that was a thing you could do, in civilized society um that those lines would inevitably come up in everyday life not so much um the thing that me and my partner quote to each other is we do um in uh, super mario 3d world when mario picks up an item he goes excellent like that i will sometimes say that to each other and that's <laughs> oh, it oh that's that's sweet yeah it's quite another, it, yeah i've got another quote stuck in my head it's from there's like a indiana jones game it's a bit like tomb raider i think it's the infernal machine it's called hmm. um and whenever he picks up a health giving herb he goes Ah, medicinal herbs. <laughs> and I think of that a lot as well. That is vi- that why. is vintage indie, that is. He's always picking up yeah. herbs. Medicinal herbs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um the uh, the one weirdly the one that from the most years ago that stuck in my brain is there's a dude in like I think it's like um South American soldier in Graw Two, the Ubisoft game. I, I'm afraid I don't remember where that game is set, but um, when you ask him to like move his tank to a certain location, he goes, no say, cannot do. And he says, no say, cannot do every single time you ask him. And that is stuck in my head. So, um, oh. yeah, um, what a weird note to end on. But um, those are the yeah. questions, Matthew. It's um, It's been fun, though. Like, um, really enjoyed firing good through mail. those. Uh, yeah, good yeah. mailbag. Nice mix of stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, we- sorry, sorry for people who are looking for us to be a bit more indiscreet on certain questions, but you know what we're like. Yeah. We're square and we're scared. We're scared of getting sued. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I um, you know, I I I just uh, it's just not um, I didn't start a podcast to like basically like bring up old grudges. That's not the reason I did it. So uh, yeah, th- that's why I'm um, you know, uh, besides my that's, gr- that that'll be a, that'll be a Patreon reward. That'll be the one-off <laughs> grudge cast that we do. Yeah, and um, besides, Matthew is my worst enemy in games media anyway. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, no, that was that was fun, Matthew. But. We'll be back next week with our um, E3 themed episode with our uh, special guest. That will be um, that'll be fun when that's edited together. So um, people can look forward to that. I'm not sure what this does to our Game Boy Advance games episode, but uh, we can maybe pick that up. We got a bunch of that we tweeted out that we were going to do, but our schedule's been messed up a bit now. We'll figure out some good stuff though. We'll definitely do Zelda next month, and in a few episodes' time, we'll likely do Best Games of 2009 as well. So people can look forward to that. We tend to do those every ten episodes or so. So um, mm. yeah, that will come up inevitably. But um, Matthew, where can people find you on uh, social media? 
I'm at Mr. Basil underscore Pesto. I'm Samuel W. Roberts on Twitter. If you want to send us more questions that we'll read out of the podcast, you're absolutely welcome to. Backpagegames at gmail.com if you want to send us a longer question. At BackpagePod on Twitter if you'd like to send us a short one. Either way, we'll throw them into a big Google Doc and then read them out when we uh, do a future episode. So um, thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back next week. Bye-bye.